Welcome to the Demand Gen Club podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to B2B demand generation secrets and best practices as shared by some of the top leaders in the industry. This podcast is brought to you by SASMQL, the account-based marketing agency based in Redwood City, California. They help venture-funded SaaS companies scale demand generation from target accounts. By combining intent data, automation, and a proven methodology, SASMQL can help your startup generate millions of dollars in sales opportunities within a few months. To learn more, go to sasmql.com. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Dimension Club podcast. I'm your host, Franco Caporale. Our guest today is Fanette Jobard, Senior Demand Generation Manager at JFrog. JFrog's mission is to transform the way enterprises manage and release software updates. With more than 6,000 customers, JFrog is the leading DevOps platform that empowers developers to code high-quality applications that securely flow to end-users without interruptions. At JFrog, Fanet is responsible for driving sales opportunities and revenue in North America through integrated campaigns. Prior to JFrog, she had a chance to build lead generation engines for companies like Docker, Algolia, and more recently Screen as their head of demand generation. So I'm really happy to welcome today Fanet Jobard, Senior Demand Generation Manager at JFrog. Fanet, I'm very excited to have you on the episode today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So I want to start right away. Tell us a little bit about your, your story, your background. Where did you work? What was your role? And tell us about where, what's your role today and what's your company. So I, I started my career in uh, analytics and media research. Uh, so uh, heavy, I would say heavy statistics-centric uh, roles uh, in, in France. And at one point, I moved to the U.S. seven years ago. Uh, when I moved to the U.S., I was looking for a job where I can uh, put in practice that data-driven mindset. And uh, naturally, demand generation and growth marketing were, were kind of the next uh, logical steps. Um, so I started uh, doing growth marketing for Docker. At the time, it was a, a small startup. Uh, then I own uh, demand generation uh, at Algolia from, I would say, 10 million AR to uh, over uh, 50 million AR. And so really moving up market uh, with, with the company. Uh, more recently, I worked uh, in a Series A uh, startup where uh, I led demand generation screen. Um, and, and even more recently, uh, one month ago, I joined JFrog uh, in the demand generation team uh, to uh, own um, the integrated campaigns and, and the marketing in uh, North America. Can you tell us a little more about JFrog, your current company, how big it is, you know, who's in your team and what are your exact responsibilities there? Yeah, so JFrog is a newly uh, public company. Uh, it's a pretty, uh, I would say it's a pretty uh, big startup. Uh, I think there is more than uh, 700 employees uh, all over the world. Um, the team, the Dimension team is about 15 uh, people uh, with uh, amazing uh, leadership. And, uh, and we are covering uh, any kind of channel um, in terms of Dimension. And so now you're working in this, you know, more established, larger company or startup. I mean, still, I don't know if you can define it as a startup, yeah. JFrog, but definitely a more established yeah. company. Yeah. So how was the impact of joining a company like this after having worked for, you know, Series A, Series B, more early stage 
kind of companies before and how did your approach change yeah so i was i was really i kind of uh, i have done dimension for all the all the different stages and i was missing the pre ipo to public uh, uh, stage and what i was like geeky about was to understand how dimension changed based on what kind of company uh, you're pro- you're promoting what kind of uh, product you're promoting uh, so you don't do the same uh, dimension in a series a startup as as in in a public company um, and that was really what motivated me to join like a, a bigger team um, as you um, as you work in a bigger team you think more strategically and also collectively so it's no longer your own ownership but it's more like how do you uh, work uh, with a team to um, to ship the campaigns and and track the result as well did um, in terms of uh, your uh you know, daily operation or like how do you implement this program? Um, what do you see? How do you see the differences? Yeah, in terms of uh, the daily operation, I would say uh, so. So really, so when I think of it, I, I did a, a big, uh, a big uh, leap uh, from the Series A to uh, to the public company. In the Series A, as a dimension uh, marketer, you're you're usually one of the first marketers, so you tend to own a lot of stuff. You're, you're owning the marketing operations, you're owning the digital uh, aspects of, of marketing, you're owning also some other channels, working closely with uh, product. In a public company, you're a little bit less operational and more strategic and, and really uh, it's more like about like how do you project um, manage a campaign and have all the different elements of that campaign coming together. So it's a lot of project managing in the in the larger company versus actual execution directly and kind of moving things forward. Is that okay. yeah, exactly. And uh, in terms of um, how, like, I want to know a little bit about your favorite tech stack. And I assume you know in previous company you might have provided input about what tech stack you use. How does it work as you join a larger company? Uh, so so yeah uh, so so I, I I was pretty close to marketing operation for uh, like all my previous roles. It, it's pretty the new role is is actually yeah pretty new for me because I'm not owning the marketing operation, but I need to work with uh, people that are expert in that domain. The the tech stack the main difference is I would say like when you join a, a smaller startup you have to build the tech stack so. It's really a matter of like building for efficiency. Uh, you don't always have like an extensive budget in order to build your tech stack, but the startup will grow. So how do you build for efficiency and for uh, the long long term? In a bigger company, your tech stack is often uh, legacy. So you have some some piece of the of the stack that are like from other teams, uh, but also something you have also like in internal teams that are building in-house uh, the equivalent of some tools that are your pur- that you're purchasing. So for example, I'm, I'm taking a pretty simple use case. Uh, when you're in a small startup, you always purchase some kind of landing page uh, builders. When you're like in a bigger startup, you usually have a design and integration team that is building some kind of landing page template for you and, and you can uh, scale your dimension page on, on those templates. There's a lot of outsourcing in in our Series A and Series B companies. Right? Exactly. Yeah, and then you have to switch all your ads in order to to do a little bit of everything. So, remember doing some email design. It's uh, still funny when I receive the email of like really 
uh, companies and it's still my design from five years ago. Um, so that's uh, it's always like a... Yeah, they, they don't get updated very, very often. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like, tell us some names in terms of like what you guys are using as platform that helps you on your daily work or to build campaigns. Yeah, so I will I will probably uh, speak of my previous experience because uh, 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 Jeff Rugg is pretty new. Um, so kind of a classic stack, uh, I would say Marketo and Salesforce, like the central pieces of the of the stack, they are obviously communicating with each other to uh, track and assign to own what I will call the sales marketing uh, end of process. Um, and then around those two tools, uh, you have a bunch of like satellites uh, tools. So depending on how you, you want to um, build your stack, you obviously will need uh, a webinar uh, tool. Uh, so I know at JFrog we have on 24. Um, and then you can also like add other gravitational tools. One tool that I really uh, enjoy working with was Matkudu. It's a predictive scoring um, tool in Engine. And I know that now they have more advanced features that are like even predicting the revenue uh, channel by channel. So it's pretty cool in terms of reporting. Um, you have the attribution piece. So if you have Marketo, they always they they, they will uh, bundle uh, Marketo with Visible. But you have also like Lean Data that's doing an amazing work in, in uh, making your attribution more visible. Which leads me very well into my next question because I know yeah. you are very very strong about attribution and you focus a lot of time and you know you believe in very clean attribution so i want to know what do you what do you recommend what's your advice to track this level of attribution particularly at the top of the funnel where uh, sometimes it's it's very hard to track even more if uh, there's offline channels like i don't know if you guys run billboard campaigns or if you do anything that is not digital how do you how do you track that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, an excellent question. Um, I would say with attribution, uh, always keep in mind that the simpler is always the better because even if you're thirsty for a more advanced attribution model, you, you will still have to explain attribution to the execs, to the sales team. And really, in, in these cases, always the, the simpler, the better. Don't overcomplicate it, your, your attribution. You don't do attribution the same way for a Series A startup as a, a Series C or, or a more um, advanced startup. But I would say really tracking the first touch is always is always key, at least for you uh, on the Dimension team, um, because the first touch is always like where you spend the money in the first place. So it could be an event, could be, as, as you mentioned, the billboard. It could be your uh, Facebook ads. So really you need to be as close as the money as possible um, and, and being able like to track that. For um, digital ads, it's really down to the UTM parameters. It's still, it's still one of the best way um, to, to track the interactions. Of course, it has its limits. I'm working with the DevOps audience and DevOps personas, and those people love ad blocker. And so sometimes you're uh, or just removing like the UTM tags from an URL. So sometimes you're losing maybe... 15 to 20 percent of your attribution but really utm parameters are key to track the offline uh, channels so i would say 
in the event scenario, it's always good to have a demand gen ambassador at the booth and making sure if the sales are actually uh, tracking people or, or recording the, the business cards properly. So how do you can ease that process or even um, create some kind of incentive for, for the sales to uh, enter the, the leads in, in the system? So, so that way you can uh, track your ROI of the event and it, it's worth it to renew the event. For the billboard, it's it's pretty tricky. So I think it's down to the promotion code. If you have a promotion code, it's it's something you can't really. I, I remember um, I remember trying to track geolocated visits to the like region of a billboard uh, in San Francisco. You have to accept that it's really working for your awareness, and that you won't. There is a bunch of things you won't be able like to track. Yeah, I guess at that point, it becomes more of a correlation that you drive, right? And see that when you started running the billboard, you know, maybe your traffic went up and other yeah. other metrics that you can see that correlated. But yeah, it's not going to be a direct attribution right at that point. I remember like when you are doing some partnership with conferences, I think you can, uh, you can with a tracking of the IP address, you can be down in, into like a specific neighborhood. And I remember uh, one of our partner mentioned mentioned the company name on stage uh, on the Moscone Center, and really seeing all those Moscone IP address uh, connected to the websites uh, in Google Analytics was like a good indicator of like the awareness that the events uh, dropped. Oh, that's an awesome, awesome way to correlate the traffic and, and the source. So from the attribution, I want to understand a little more uh, your approach to ABM because that also obviously involves attribution. You talk about Matkudo and lead scoring and everything. Do you guys track attribution and scoring also at, at the account level? And what is your uh, approach to ABM versus inbound marketing and content marketing? Yeah, so so on the ABM side, it's kind of the same as attribution. It's like it was really kept simple. So it was uh, more like building a target, a list of targeted accounts uh, and tracking those targeted accounts all along the website on all the different interaction with all brands. So for the attribution in particular, it gets, at least in my opinion, it gets very tricky when you're trying to decide, you know, you have multiple people from that account that are engaging across different campaigns how do yeah. you how do you weight that right because i don't know if a junior marketing person in the same company is different than the vp uh, and maybe they come from different channel how do you weight that engagement yeah. at the campaign level when you look at the account instead of leads yeah, no, totally. So in, in terms of uh, of uh, ABM, so you're obviously targeting different personas. The idea is to like really penetrate the accounts and then having different piece of content, have, having different assets uh, towards a different persona of the account. So um, for example, for products like, like Algolia or JFrog, it's really, you can target the developer as you can target at the same time the VP engineering. So of course they won't, reply to the same uh, kind of asset and offers. Um, how do you track that? Uh, it's also, ABM is also uh, a, a partnership with the sales. So you have, you have really also to partner with them and track their interactions. So you have to think about, about like two uh, timelines. The, the timeline of uh, marketing and demand gen interaction 
from the accounts and the sales interaction to the accounts. Uh, and, and it's a mix of, of those two interactions. So maybe maybe the accounts really created an opportunity just after one of your webinar. But just after this opportunity, there is another opportunity, maybe an upsell opportunity that have been created uh, has been created by the, the sales. So how it's it's really a matter of I would say accepting the sales as part of a dimension team and accepting the dimension team as being part of a sales team and having that integrated timeline of all the different touches on the on the account. And so tell us more about how you work with the sales team to coordinate this and, and orchestrate these campaigns. And I'm sure there is a difference again between this, the early stage startup and 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 the established company, but like what is uh what is a good best practice to make this thing work? Yeah. When you're in a series A company, your dimension is is really part of I would say almost part of a sales team. So you're working closely with the team and the sales leadership. You're also creating your goals, target revenues, uh, depending on their own growth. So if they plan to hire, let's say, four mid-market execs, you need to adjust your dimension plan in order to be able to feed those four mid-market account execs. And, um, and, and you really need that close connection. So attending all, all the meetings, trying to connect with them, Obviously, with the COVID situation, it's it's pretty hard to be in the same room, the same open space, and have that energy, sales energy with you, but like really trying to connect with them as much as possible. On a bigger company, it's really down. So the sales team is also more complex. So it's divided into different teams, sometimes into different pods where you, you're mixing different uh, sales role, and you also have like sales specialized by product. So really... Uh, identifying who's doing what, um, how do you communicate uh, with them proactively? It's always like being uh, proactive on the communication side, essentially on the on the accounts. So in bigger company, there is chance that we already have some contacts on on the accounts we are targeting. So really keeping them in the loop of all the different initiatives. The sales time is precious because it's it's really a factor of money. So time is time is money. So you don't want to have them lose their time over of reading your email. So you have to find the best way of communicating with them, joining their meeting, organizing some kind of virtual appear with them to connect. Do you think it works better when the SDR reporting to marketing or it makes it easier or it doesn't change much? This is this is a good question. I always ask myself that question because I I found myself like in, in smaller startup where uh, I was doing the marketing operation or owning the marketing sales end off. You have a feeling of working 50% of your time with ESDRs directly, uh, mentoring them, answering their questions, um, being proactive on, on the campaign which you, you shipped. But I think like SDR should really stay under sales. So why is that? Um, it's because they are a sales role and they are like a temporary role. And so I think if they want to a progress in the company, learn new things, become an AE. They need to be mentored by sales uh, leadership and not marketing leadership. So they should, for their personal and career growth, they should stay uh, under under the sales management. And then I think it's also good for them to be under the sales management because they, they are also a sales marketing uh, link. It pushes marketing to connect with the sales uh, build that relation with the SDR, um, build that marketing operation, hygiene, and really uh, connect with the sales team. 
Awesome. Yes, I see that working pretty well, especially if there is enough alignment between you know demand generation and sales, then it works really smoothly. I want to also ask you about events because obviously 2020 has been a very particular year for for event. And now we see all these virtual events popping up everywhere. A lot of companies are reallocated budget to virtual events. I want to know what's your... Uh, What's your opinion on these virtual events and how are you planning next year? Is it going to be all virtual events again or are you hoping at some point to reallocate some budget to some live events? Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of proud of my year. When I, when I did some planning for 2020 last year, uh, I, was, uh, I was thinking of allocating all my event budget for uh, Q1 2020 and especially, essentially in January and February. Um, and I thought it was kind of disbalanced, but I kept that budget that way. Um, so I'm kind of proud because <laughs> because I didn't invest it in in sponsorship uh, later uh, this year. Uh, so I'm I'm probably one of the uh, of the only uh, dimension person that made revenue from uh, physical events in 2020. Um, but then then the strategy moved toward more like digital events. Uh, it's it's really amazing to see how the marketing teams uh, adapted, and I see have a lot of friends that are working in field uh, field events, field marketing, and that switched everything to webinars. So they are doing more demand generation than event marketing um, nowadays. And so I've seen uh, a movement where we had a wave of creating more webinars, workshops, so being creative with the different online formats. And it was pretty successful until, I would say, recently, until September. And since September, and I've seen that in, uh, in a lot of also other, other friends working in Dimension, I think we, we noticed some kind of online event fatigue. And so that will be challenging for next year. I think that fatigue can be explained by the competition. There is so many new webinars. And, and we are not only competing now against B2B webinars, but we are also competing against I don't know, online therapy session, uh, homeschooling, uh, online classes, a bunch of other stuff that are not only Dimension podcasts, that are not only like B2B, um, B2B marketing related. And so competition is really tough and we need to be, uh, I think, more creative for next year. So strategy, I think next year will be uh, to still keep uh, high pace in terms of webinar. But also this year, we created a lot of content. And so what about like optimizing uh, what we already created and repackage, redigest it uh, in, in, a, in a different format? So next year will be, I think part of that will be to keep that pace in, in virtual events, repackage what have been um, existing this year. And also, why not create some kind of hybrid formats where you can have maybe the speakers in a room, rent a hotel, uh, some room where you can social distance, have the speakers there, record the session, and then create some kind of online uh, event where uh, people can uh, can attend. So yeah, I'm really curious to see uh, what will be the um, uh, the strategy for others next year in terms of online event. I think this uh, yeah webinar fatigue is a little bit concerning. Um, so curious to see if if it's just the season or if it's uh, a long term. You don't think the live events are a thing of the past? Like people seem to be pretty eager to go back to meet in person and conferences and trade shows. 
Yeah, hopefully we're not a thing in the past, but I think with, with COVID, we'll have to be careful at least at least until mid next year. So I won't commit into like any uh, live event before. I would say it will be tough. The, the first uh, part of uh, 2021 will be a tough one for live event for sure. Yeah, I think so too. So if there is one last takeaway that you can share with us, one advice or recommendation or something that you wish you would have known um, when you started your career or when you started in your last role at JFrog, what would that be? I will say uh, one advice when embracing the, the demand generation career is accepting chance. So I'm using the word chance and not luck. Because a bunch of campaigns, you have happy results and sometimes you have accidental fear. And, and chance is always part of your campaign. Taking some, some examples, uh, we have the webinars. The, the webinars and the virtual events were working super well, I would say, in Q3. And they are not working as well in Q4. So you're trying to reproduce something that is successful and that for some reason won't work. Um, and sometimes you have also happy accidents. Having a campaign, planning your campaign, and things are not going as, as you expect. And it's, uh, it's, it's part of a game. Taking uh, uh, one example of, uh, of my most uh, famous happy accident, uh, it was a, a highly targeted reactivation campaign on emails. And we were using, you know, sending marketer emails, pretending uh, to send on behalf of the SDRs, uh, using the person first name, the company uh, name for highly personalized uh, emails. Um, during that time, we had a consultant uh, working for us. And that person, uh, during maybe 10 hours, that person uh, created some kind of upset in the Salesforce database. So basically, the name of the people were no longer in front of the right company. And so it was too late. Our campaign was scheduled and everything was sent. And so for 10 hours, people received email with the wrong company name. So when we realized that it was, it was like, you can guess, it was horrible. I was like, oh my God. And then what happened is that, let's say, so you're working for, um, you're working at SASMQL and we send an email pretending you're working at Slack. Um, and so, hello, Franco, like, I think Slack could benefit from our products. What about like a, a demo or a call? Um, and so people uh, send us like reply to those emails and they said, okay, I'm not working at Slack. You have, your database is wrong. And they say, but if Slack is using your product or wants to use your product, I don't see why uh, we shouldn't have a call. And so we actually generated some calls about those uh, mistakes, like the, those um, horrible emails with a mismatch between the, the, the name of the company and the person. And we created some, uh, some meetings out of that uh, because people were like interested that knowing that the competitor was potentially a customer of ours. That's a, that's a funny one. I, I know, for example, companies that on purpose put typos on the ads to make them more oh. genuine. I don't know if that works all the time, but there is this now trend that if a video ad is overproduced or the ad, the ad is overproduced, it comes across less genuine and more artifact. I don't know if mm -hmm. that works all the time, but uh, it's a very cool story. Uh, so thank you so much, Fanette. It was really a pleasure talking to you today. And again, thanks for spending time with us. Well, thanks for having me as well. <laughs> <laughs>